Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. And so here we are, Palm Sunday, starting our Super Bowl week of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I'm glad you're here. Palm Sunday for me outside of Easter, because we have to love that holiday, right? We have to love that when you can't walk into church and be like, hey, I'm not a big Easter fan. Oh, really? The resurrection doesn't really do much for you? Okay. Cool story, bro. You know, you got to love Christmas, right? And not because of the tree or the presents, because our Savior came and put on flesh like us. You got to love those two. But I really do love Palm Sunday. You know, for me, uh, I went to Bible college because, one, I was dumb and I needed training, right? Just call it what it is. (laughs) And Nick, you still are. Maybe you need to go back. And and a couple of the degrees I got were focused in apologetics, not because I'm looking at the world and think, yeah, we're probably going to need some training and equipping in that, which I think is true, but even for my own heart and mind. I'm from Missouri, the show me state. Evidence has always been a part of my life. Prove it to me. Show me. And for me, Palm Sunday is one of those things where I think God just said, oh, uh, yeah, it's not a blind faith that you have. It is a very evidential faith, and let me show you through it. And so the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus rolling into Jerusalem, um, we, it is in all the Gospels. Most of us know at least a basic understanding of that, that, again, Palm Sunday rolled in. They're all shouting Hosanna. They laid down some palm branches. Um, and, and then we start the last week and he gets arrested and killed and, and we, we get that, but we're just going to go a little bit deeper. So it's in every gospel. So Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, but I'm going to go to John 12 and I'm going to read John's, um, description of what this triumphal entry is. And so if you have your Bibles, John 12, 12, and he starts in, he says the next day. So we're jumping right into mid scene, right? Like we're, we're mid movie right now. And there's a whole lot in those first, you know, 11 and a half chapters that you definitely should read. And so we get to this point and John's writing and he says, in the next day, the large crowd that came to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, I love little verses like that. It shows that John's writing at a later time, looking back, writing this story out. And he kind of shows his own ignorance and, and that of the disciples. Like, hey, just want you guys to know as the reader that even when this was happening, we didn't even understand the fullness of it. It wasn't until Jesus ascended, was glorified, ascended to heaven, that we started looking at each other and walking back through the story and seeing the fullness and the significance of it. Because a lot of times we look at that and we'll be mid-gospel and think, these disciples, they're so stupid. How did they miss that? To which I ask the same for the disciples of Jesus today, which I am one of those. How can I be so stupid and miss what God is doing at times in my life, even in our church, 
Why? Because I'm stubborn, thick-headed, and I still struggle with sin, and I quench the Spirit, and I don't listen to the Lord. I follow after my own desires and what I want. I have a pride problem. I have an ego problem, and I'm going to miss it just like they do. So it gives me comfort to hear that, that if this was the disciple whom Jesus loved and he missed it, maybe Jesus loves this disciple even when I miss it. Amen? Verse 17, and then the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So they're still talking about that. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So you you can't talk about the triumphal entry without the resurrection of Lazarus, raising him from the dead. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so we're going to talk about Palm Sunday. We're just going to give a a little bit of a Jewish background. You know, uh, I don't think any of us in here uh, have uh, celebrate Passover because we're Jewish. I'm scanning the crowd. I'm thinking most of us are Gentile believers. And so some of these Jewish feasts and festivals and things that, you know, maybe we've heard a, a good sermon or some teaching on, but not something that we've encountered and engaged in on our normal life. And so in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 16, 16 tells us that there are three feasts, three pilgrimages that the Jews would have to take every year. There was three feasts that you had to come to Jerusalem for, right? And so verse 16 says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, before Yahweh, your God, at the place that he will choose. The feast of unleavened bread, which that's what we're celebrating right here, feast of unleavened bread, Passover, first fruits, those are all kind of celebrated uh, within just a few days with, uh, together. And then you have the Feast of Weeks, which is also the Feast of Pentecost. And as good Christians, we know what Pentecost means, but this is a feast that they celebrated in the Old Testament. And then you have the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was a a fall feast. And there's a whole lot of significance to some of those fall ones, because Jesus fulfilled the first three, spring feast, And then there's that Feast of Pentecost, which we understand that 50 days after Jesus was resurrected, that the Holy Spirit came. And so for if you were an Old Testament Jew at this point, you would be traveling to Jerusalem for this feast, Feast of Unleavened Bread, where we're at kind of right now. And then you'd go back home, and then about 50 days later, you would have to come back for the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, and then you had another one in the fall. And it says, they shall not appear before the Lord before Yahweh empty-handed, right? And so we know that even Jesus, this was a part of his life. So if you look at Luke chapter two, we see that his whole family, that we, every year, he, with his family, his parents, verse 41 says his, Luke 2, 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, they went up according to the custom. And we understand that's that story when Jesus was 12 and they left him behind. You ever leave your kids at church? Yeah, we just baptize them. No. Um, (laughs) But Jesus got left at the temple and we understand that story. But this was something they did every year that they would pack up the whole family. And it was quite a big thing. It wasn't just like, you know, how Jesus, how they missed Jesus and it was just a small family. No, they were aunts, uncles, and cousins. Like it was a whole parade of people. And so three times a year you would do this. And you'd walk into Jerusalem, which normally was like a population of 40,000 people. But at Passover, 
especially out all of them, if you're going to go to any of them, you're going to go to Passover. You're not going to miss that. It would, it would swell to six times the amounts. There'd be a lot of people rolling in, very crowded. And, and the other kind of cool thing that we understand from Exodus 12 with the institution of Passover is that they needed to keep their Passover lamb. Remember, every family had to bring a one-year-old unblemished lamb. But you had to keep that lamb with you for three days before you sacrificed it. Right? So if you ever want to rip a child's heart right out of their chest, go buy a one-year-old little baby lamb, name it, give it to your kids for three days, and be like, now what are we going to do? <laughs> We're going to kill it and spread its blood everywhere. I don't know if I like this God. What is, what is going on here? But that's what you're supposed to do. So all these families rolling into Jerusalem would have already had their lamb. And they would have wrapped them up and really took care of them because if it was blemished, then it couldn't, you know, if it stubbed its toe, got a broken leg, pink eye. I don't know what lambs get. I'm not a, do I look like a shepherd like that? Like, can a lamb get pink eye? Like, somebody Google it. Let me know. You know, yes. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Weird. Okay. So they would have wrapped this lamb up, took very good care of him because they didn't want anything to happen. And that's one of the things that Jesus got so mad at the Pharisees about is because they would roll in with their lamb and be like, nah, yeah, that's not good. We can't use that lamb for the sacrifice. You need to buy one of ours. And like anybody that has ever bought a cheeseburger at an amusement park, know that you can go to McDonald's for a dollar, but at Six Flags, it's $97, right? <laughs> Same burger, right? Same quality, same thing, upcharge, supply and demand. And then when you went to pay, like, oh, no, no, we, we can't accept your money because that's the money you use back in your homeland. We, we, need, we need temple money. So you had to do the exchange rate. So you lost money there. Then you lost money buying the lamb. Then you lost money on the exchange back into your regular money. Den of robbers, I think Jesus was right on that. And so are you switching me up here? Amen. Here we go. Gracias. And so they're walking in with their lambs, and everybody had one. There's an old historian, an ancient Jewish historian. He reported one year that there was over a quarter million lambs that were killed at Passover. Right? So it's not only crowded, we all brought our pets. I don't know if you travel with pets. That's the worst thing in the world. And so it's a very volatile situation. We know that Rome always wanted to keep control. And you're probably wondering, like, well, why did they have to travel in? Because when Rome would take over a nation, they would take, you know, a group of the people, and they would send them out this way, and they'd take a group of the people, send them out that way, take a group, and they would disperse them everywhere so that there wasn't a large gathering of that nation because it was easier to control small pockets, especially if they all had different languages and different cultures. You know, they could live amongst themselves, but the Roman Empire, they would split them out like that. But then three times a year, we all came back together. And as Pastor Andy talked about, the Song of Ascent. You know, some of the Psalms, I think it starts in like 114, 113, up to 116. Those were the Psalms of Ascent. So as you were walking from wherever you were at, you were always going uphill to Jerusalem, and you would start singing and praying these Psalms in preparation for the journey and on the journey that you were making. And then as you got closer, obviously more and more friends, and you'd just be crowds rolling into Jerusalem, singing the Psalms of Ascent, getting ready to celebrate Passover, which we know is redemption from Egypt. And so think of Rome. Rome wanted to keep peace, but they got this large population of people coming into an already very volatile place. Jerusalem, Israel, was not a peaceful place. 
And then they're all celebrating this holiday that commemorates their redemption from another nation that, over, that oppressed them and overtook them. Rome's probably thinking, we, we, need to be, we need to call in the Roman National Guard. We probably need a few extra hands just in case something gets out of hand. And the Jewish leaders, they wanted to have good relationship with the Rome authorities, right? So if you're in John, just go back to verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 48. This is uh, a very unique verse that talks about how did they miss it with Jesus? You know, if all these Jews were waiting on the Messiah and he fulfilled all these prophecies, how did they miss it? Because they really weren't looking for a Messiah. Look at verse 48. These are the Pharisees and the chief priests talking amongst themselves. And he says, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And we as the church are like, that's the point. Let Jesus do his thing and everybody's going to believe. But they didn't like that. Why? Because the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, they were more concerned about their position, their authority, and what they had. They weren't looking to God. They weren't looking for their Messiah. They just wanted to keep the authority and the position that they had. And so this is just a very Jewish background, and now we're going to transition to a prophetic background. So it's not just something that they did, but God in the Old Testament gives us a few promises. And we're going to geek out a little bit for those of us that like it. So go to Daniel, if you would. Ezekiel, then you go to Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. Man, Ezekiel is long. There we go. Now we're in Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. And and I want to read a couple verses before we get right into this prophecy. Because uh, it's Palm Sunday today. Welcome. Glad you're here. Next week is Easter. Might have heard of it. And then for three weeks, we're going to be in the book of Jude. And then after Jude, we are going to start, I think it's the beginning of May, we're going to start our study in the letter from Patmos, from John, which we know as Revelation. Now, the study of Revelation, a lot of people hear that. And what we have to understand, if we're reading the book of Revelation and we're looking for the Antichrist, if we're looking for the Mark of the Beast, if we're talking about end times, you missed the purpose of the book of Revelation. Verse 1 says it's a revelation of Jesus. So if we read or study the book of Revelation in any other way that does not point us to Jesus, we're reading it inappropriately and not how God intended for us. Because every time God brings a revelation to us, it's always for our understanding, never for mystery. It's always for us to know, and he wants to reveal, not for us to scratch our heads and fight about who's right and their theological stance, even for Daniel. So look at verse 22, Daniel 9, verse 22. The the angel Gabriel is coming, and it says, He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insights in understanding. That is God's heart in giving revelation, is that we would have insight and understanding. And so we get into verse 24, and it says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. This is good to know because Daniel's in Babylon right now. They are taken over. He's pulled out, sent to Babylon. He's not even in his homeland. And then the angel is coming, and he's giving him, the angel giving Daniel, saying, hey, let me talk to you about your people and your city. 
good. I want insight and understanding of this. Are we going to stay in captivity? When are we going to get out? And the angel says, 70 weeks are declared. Now, the literal translation to is, it's not weeks, it's 77s. 77s are decreed about your people in your holy city. And listen to the description. To finish the transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So it's not just, hey, it's 77s until you get to go back to Israel. Let's talk about the culmination of everything that God is doing. right? And this is important for us as Christians. And in going on, verse 25 says, know therefore and understand. Again, those are key words. Know and understand this. This isn't a mystery. This is a revelation. Those are two different things. A revelation is something to be known. So know and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it should be built again with squares and moat, but in, time, in trouble time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So Daniel is in Babylon probably around 605 to 536 B.C., Right? And he's writing this prophecy that is given to him from the angel Gabriel in Babylon. Now, he gives us two events. He gives us one to start the clock, and he gives us one because who's this anointed prince that's going to appear and then be cut off? And like a good Sunday school class, if you don't know the answer, just say Jesus, and you'll always be right. Right? But it, it shows us somewhere that the clock is going to start, and it says that the going out of the word to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So we know, and this is in Nehemiah. So when they're in Babylon and they're able to go back to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem, you got cats like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. And they're able to go back and build the people up, build the city up, and build the temple the walls. That's what those books of the Bible are about, is those leaving the exile and going back. Now we have to put it into our, into our Gregorian calendar, but we know that date that Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, was able to allow, and he allowed Nehemiah and all those to go back and to restore. So we know the date of that, and that is, and find my notes here, there we go, March 5th, 444 B.C., so understand that, that Daniel received this prophecy 150, maybe 200 years before even the word to go out to rebuild Jerusalem was given, right? So we know that's the date that it starts. Now, so take the 7 and the 62, and those are specific about how long it would take Nehemiah to rebuild the city walls, and in trouble time, if you read Nehemiah and you study that, you know that they had, like, you know, the tools in one hand and a weapon in another, that they had to build the, the walls under some distress, which fully fulfills what Daniel's talking about here. And so you have 69 sevens, right? So you have the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. So we have 69 sevens. Do the math and you convert it to years, and that's 483 years from the time that we get to go and rebuild Jerusalem to this anointed one, right? And so we know Artaxerxes commanded to rebuild, that's Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8, March 5th, 444 BC. Now, if we take that 483 and times it, here's the geek out, right? We're doing math, I'm sorry, love you, mean it. You times it by 360, 
because that's how many days Jews had in their calendar. We have 365 and like and a half or something like that. That's why we have that stinking leap year every few years. But for the Jewish calendar, there was 360 days. You take that times the 483 and you come up with 173,880 days. Okay, that's how many days. And somebody's already done the math and thank the Lord for that, right? Not this geek, a bigger geek. Yes, there are bigger ones than me. And so if you start March 5th in 444 BC and you count forward 173,880 days, you will land on March 30th, AD 33, the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. See, that's exciting for me, right? Okay, I was hoping you were catching that. Like, that's exciting for me. (laughs) Do what? We're done. done. Okay, good. Okay. Because think about it. Like, and and critical scholars want to say this is why Daniel was written so much later. Like, because it's so accurate that it had to be written afterwards because there's no way you could predict that. And they kind of had a fight a little bit to say that until about 1947, 1948. Anybody know what we found? the Dead Sea Scrolls that are dated possibly 250 to 150 years before Christ. And it has the whole Old Testament that is the absolute same Old Testament that you hold in your hand right now if you brought your Bible and got your sticker for bringing your Bible to church. It's the same prophecy was given. So we know that that prophecy was given well before Jesus. And so down to the very day that the anointed one, the Messiah, is going to be rolling into Jerusalem, God, through the angel Gabriel, gives to Daniel, not only am I going to tell you when you get out of Babylonian captivity, let's talk about when you get out of captivity of sin. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, we're still in sin. Didn't we just have that big talk about a horrible, evil sin that has happened in our country? Yes. And, and you've done the math already. You already know 69 Week 69 sevens, well, there's still one grouping of seven years that we haven't lived through yet. What possibly could that be? The 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation. That is what Revelation, after about chapters four and five, is discussing. Those things that will take place. And again, that revelation from John tells us clearly the things that will take place. And so we are still waiting on that, and we are in the church age. So it's almost like we started the clock at Nehemiah to rebuild. We see the Messiah who came, the anointed one, who should be cut off and have nothing, pointing to the cross. So, and that stopped it. Now we're in this waiting zone to start the clock again. And when do we start that next seven-year period, that last 70th week of Daniel? Keep reading. And all the people and the prince who has come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and it shall come with a flood, and there will be an end, and desolations are decreed. And, and he will make a strong covenant with many for one week. When the Antichrist is revealed, the church is raptured up, and the Antichrist has a covenant with the Jews that they can rebuild their temple and start their sacrifices again. And there's actually a website you can find. I think it's thirdtemple.org that they're already in plans for that. And there's some things that the Jews are doing to start. uh, Just Google like uh, Old Testament sacrifices, red heifer. You'll find all kinds of stuff. Yes, red heifer. That's not like I'm I'm being legit, not talking about, yeah, no, a person. (laughs) It's really a red heifer, red cow. Okay. And so we have that prophecy. So we know the day that was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus rolled in. And we know what vehicle he drove, right? 
A Tesla? No, he didn't drive a Tesla. Was it a Ford? No, Zechariah 9.9. So not only the day we know what he's driving, it says Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shouts aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Understand, he came for the cross. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we know what he's riding in on. And the other thing that we can't miss is sometimes we try to separate Easter and Christmas. If you didn't know, it's the same person, Jesus. And when you look at the birth of Jesus, almost in a sense of prophecy, because obviously his birth was, uh, was prophecy and prophetic, but also at his birth, think about all the things that were said of this baby, this child that was born, right? And so all those verbiages that was used to Mary and Joseph, that's Messiah kind of talk. Even King Herod is looking for a king. And he's, he's even asking his uh, geek out friends, like, do we even know where the Messiah, where this king's going to be born? They're like, oh, yeah, that's easy. That's, that's uh, Malachi. That's Bethlehem. That's easy. We know exactly where he's going to be born at. And that's why he sent his uh, you know, soldiers to kill every two-year-old male or younger. And then you have the wise men. And we, and we say three just because of the number of gifts, but we don't know how many wise men they were. But they were coming to see this anointed one, this Messiah that was born. We have the shepherds, which we don't know how many there were. I mean, imagine that, going home after work, and your wife's like, so how was work, you know, watching the sheep? Yeah, kind of weird. Why is that? A uh, heavenly host showed up, told us that the uh, Messiah was born, and gave us a sign, and we went and worshipped him. Okay, all right. You know, that's a, and then even to go further, you have Simeon. When Jesus was uh, circumcised day eight and they take him to the temple to be dedicated and circumcised, then an old man, Simeon, who was told, was a prophecy given to him specifically that you will not die until you see the Lord's Messiah. And he rolls in, he's moved in spirit, he picks up this baby and he starts prophesying. And then another lady that's there, uh, a widow named Anna, who's a prophetess, she starts prophesying about this child, this baby who is the Messiah. And anyone in earshot would have heard of that. And so the, the stories that, hey, Messiah was like, this would have been happening and been talked about in this area. And so then when you have Jesus rolling in on a donkey and they're, they're shouting out Hosanna and they're quoting actually Psalm 118, 25 to 26 and, and what they are shouting to him. Not in, in a sense of prophecy, but it definitely would have taken them back to something in the Old Testament. So if you turn to 1 Kings, we're all over the place today. 1 Kings, trying to get there. And so we know 1 Kings is when David is dying and his son tries to take the throne, a guy named Adonijah. And, and he's not supposed to be on the throne. The story, the rumor gets back to David, and he's like, no, it's supposed to be Solomon. And so I'm going to mispronounce a bunch of names, but just go with confidence and act like you don't know. So verse 38, 1 Kings 1, it says, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and then Benaiah and the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelathites, they went down and had Solomon ride on David's 
King David's mule. And they brought him to Gihon. And there the Zadok the priest took a horn of oil and, and he anointed Solomon. And they're blowing trumpets. And they said, long live the King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing the pipes, rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. And so we hear... And so when Jesus is writing in, again, uh, the Jews in the Old Testament time, in the time of Jesus, they were very biblically literate. They would have known, hold on, this is, this is very picturesque of what it was like when Solomon was anointed king and he was coming in. And so we have Jesus almost like fulfilling that so we can compare it to this triumphal entry. And, and again, what did Jesus do the day before the triumphal entry? What did he do on Saturday? It's called Lazarus Saturday. So the day before, so what you did yesterday, Saturday, that's Lazarus Saturday. Jesus walked up to a grave with a dead dude in it. After about four days, he's already smelling, and he calls out. He says, Lazarus, come out. And the same people that witnessed that are staying with Jesus, and that's the crowd that is walking with him as he's riding in to Jerusalem. Like, oh, is, is, is he going to be like this Messiah political leader? I saw him raise somebody from the dead. And even, even that night, he rose him from the dead, right, Lazarus? And what they do? They went to dinner. That's what you do after you raise somebody up from the dead. You go to dinner. And they're having dinner, and there's Lazarus just sitting there. How weird would that be? So, Lazarus, what have you been up to? Uh, I think you know that more than I do, Lord. You know? And then his, his sisters, Mary and Martha, if you remember what Mary did, she comes in with oil. And she anoints Jesus for his burial, but anoints him before this Jerusalem ride and this triumphal entry. And so we see Jesus riding in on Passover, very specific holiday feast. He's riding into, we got a week until it starts. And they're celebrating. Everybody's coming to Jerusalem for Passover because this is the, the festival, the feast where they're celebrating redemption. We just know Jesus is going to give it a greater significance. They're laying down palm branches, which even to the time of the Maccabees in that intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, you know, the palm branch was a symbol of Israel. And so they're laying these down very, very nationalistic, very symbolic of what they're laying down. And I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to have Jesus become king. They're shouting Hosanna. We sang the song. It means save now. And they're looking at Jesus to be this political leader, like save us now from Rome, that we can be our own nation and you're going to be our king. And again, all these crowds swelling, you know, as they're traveling. And what are they carrying with them? A lamb looking at the Messiah, saying, save now. And then you just think of, remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus when he started his ministry? That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus, riding in on the very day prophesied and fulfilled in Daniel, riding on the very animal, as Zechariah says, celebrating redemption for the nation of Israel, and he's saving now, not just from a military, political redemption from Rome, but a redemption from sin. That almost Jesus hearing that, I wonder if he just looked at some of these people with their lamb and said, you have no idea what it's going to take to save you. And the same crowds that were shouting Hosanna today, give it five days and they'll be shouting crucify him. 
and even, even the words of the Pharisees and the chief priest. Oh, look, he, he can save others, but he can't save himself? Absolutely. They were absolutely right. They just didn't understand the significance that Jesus could not save himself if he wanted to save others. That our salvation is in that Passover lamb. That our faith is rooted in Jewish culture, tradition, history. That we, we are Jews, Messianic Jews, by adoption. Maybe not heritage, but we are adopted into the fullness of what God has been doing through Israel now in the church, but all culminating in the person of Jesus. And so, just like what Gabriel tells Daniel, I want to give you insight and understanding. And I feel like for me, God's saying, I want you to have insight and understanding that you can look at the, the story of Palm Sunday. You can look at the evidence and everything that is in that. So you can have understanding that you don't have a blind faith. That you don't have to question and wonder, is Jesus really God's son? Is my salvation really secure? Am I saved because of his sacrifice on the cross? Did he really rise from the grave? Absolutely. That this is rooted in real historical, archaeologically confirmed events. That this isn't just a blind faith and all the pastor told me or my grandparents always just kind of read the Bible to me. That apart from this, it confirms the whole narrative of Jesus's life, that there are, there are non-Christian historians, there's 10 of them, that we can put Jesus's whole life, the virgin birth to his miracles, to his baptism, raising the dead, feeding the 5,000, his preaching and his teaching, we can, we can, his death to his resurrection, to the ascension, all of that confirmed in and again, non-Christian. They don't have an ax to grind about Jesus that is absolutely congruent with the New Testament that we have. That we have a very real faith in Jesus. This isn't just a, a hope, you know, like, oh, I hope it's not going to rain on Easter. No, no, no. We have a very real biblical hope that God is who he says he is, and his word is absolutely true and real. And it is given to us for insight and understanding that we may know and understand I'm in Christ because I've been saved by grace through faith. And if I'm in Christ, well, let's just read it. Romans 8. This is one of the passages I was reading this morning. What shall we say then? To these things, is God for us? Then who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That is present tense. That's not past tense. That is present tense. He is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, shooters, our lack of evidence and desire to lean into the full things that God has revealed to us. What's going to separate us from God as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Understand the love of the Father for you. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the promise of the church. That's the foundation of our faith, is the love of God expressed through the cross, sealed in the resurrection and the Holy Spirit inside of us. I don't know about you. Keep reading the news. Dig into what is happening. But I think it is time for the church to be the church to be the light that Christ has called us to be, that we're not going to fight evil with more evil, that we considered sheep as to be slaughtered, but we're going to lead as being the light, the love, the hands, the feet, the heart of Jesus. And we are going to continually entrust ourselves to a faithful God in doing the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us, that we would walk in them. Because we understand God has a plan. The world may feel like it's falling apart, but it's falling right into place. Our Father is absolutely sovereign over everything. What shall we fear? Fear God and nothing else. Fear those that can take, kill the body. Fear him who can take body and soul. Fear the Lord and fear nothing else. So Father, we love you. We trust you and we just thank you, Lord. Thank you for an opportunity to dig deep, to drink deep your word. And I pray that it would be nourishing, that it would be quenching our thirst for truth, for righteousness, for grace, for mercy, for love, Lord. That we find salvation in no one else but you. And as we walk with the hope of the gospel on our lips, I pray that we would put on the full armor of God, not just the helmets. And that we would have the one weapon that you've given us, your word. And we let it cut, Lord, knowing that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So continue to equip us to use what you have given us to do battle your way. And so, Jesus, fill us again with your spirit. Kindle afresh that gift inside each and every one of us. And as we move forward this week, I pray it wouldn't be just this week, but every week we celebrate as Holy Week. And as we celebrate your death, your resurrection, and the promise that we have, that you are returning again. Not on a donkey, but on a white horse to bring war, to bring an end to sin, and to finish up transgression. Lord, our hope and our faith rest in you. Give us that kind of faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...